you live within the confines of the expectations handed to you by your parents. Yeah. And what your parents want is a stable job, a suburban house and two kids and a minivan. That's the life they see for you. Make sure you can make that minimum credit card payment every month. They want stability. They don't want you out there swinging for the fences. You have to have the courage to say, I can do better than everybody expects of me. There's an entire generation of Americans who no longer care about prestige, titles, work travel, fancy offices, and lunches. Welcome to Mundane Millionaires, a podcast for this generation of small business owners who want to set their ego aside and focus on what matters, family, community, quality of life, and cash flows. In each episode, Eric Pasifici and Kevin Henderson uncover what it takes to get a little money in the bank, control your time, and invest in building great families and lives. Let's get started. All right, Kev, welcome back. Happy Monday. Yeah, likewise, man. So we have a super important topic to talk about today. Not a fun topic, unfortunately. One of the realities of life and business is that sometimes there'll be interferences in business. And right now we're looking at the possibility of a government shutdown. How would you characterize this event, Kevin? Is this a, you know, a huge deal, huge problem for SBA lending? A, you know, something that every buyer out there should be taking note of? Or what do you make of the situation? I mean, it's tough, right? So it's a matter of quantifying the likelihood of a shutdown actually happening, right? Because I think if a shutdown happens, the answer is clear, right? Like this, that would not be good, right? The SBA is likely to get hit if they can't issue loan numbers, et cetera. Like loans aren't being extended until the government reopens. So well, let's pause it for just a second and back up and tell everybody what the implications are here because lending doesn't stop entirely, right? Like what actually right. happens? Well, so the, it, first of all, it depends a little bit on the, the loan program and how things are going. But generally, the lenders we work with, as the way I understand it, as preferred lenders, is they have the discretion to advance funds and to make loans without having the full approval of the SBA, right? If you're a non-PLP lender, like I think in that world, it's pretty catastrophic because they can't actually advance loans mm -hmm. until the loan files reviewed and approved by the SBA for the guarantee. And that can happen if the SBA is closed and, and, and not funded. But even on the PLP side, that there's a system for these lenders, once they make their underwriting decision, which they have discretion to do, they still have to get a loan number, for lack of a better, uh, lack of a better word, issued by the SBA, which is kind of the rubber stamp of the SBA that, you know, that this loan under the PLP program has the benefit of the guarantee subject to, you know, any potential future. And that is still a process that involves the SBA. So I think even in the PLP lending world, which most of our lenders work in, and I'm sure feel free to correct in the comments if I'm misstating anything here, that process too cannot happen. So we have, for example, deals right now that are looking at closing end of this week or early in October where lenders, where the file is in a place for them to be able to do so, are kind of fast tracking this final loan approval process internally at the bank so that they can get the loan number assigned prior to this weekend when the government shutdown is imminent due to the concern that if it slips to Monday and they don't have a loan number, 
we don't know how long it may be until they can actually get it. So let's double click on that for just a second. I'm a buyer in process right now. I don't have a loan number. What should I be doing today? I think it's two, twofold and a lot of it depends on where you are in your deal cycle. So if your closing is imminent, call it in the next two to four weeks, I, I would be working very hard with your lender starting immediately after watching this video to understand what their process is. Is there any way that you can get a loan approval in short order? You know, when your loan is going to committee, if the bank has provision to be doing committee meetings on a fast track basis this week to try and approve these loans to, to get loan numbers and things like that. Just, 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 let's pause there. So you're saying if you have a deal that is imminently closing, you want to get off watching this video and you want to email your banker right now, call them and say, what do I need to do today? What do I need to give you? What needs to happen for us to go get that PLP number? from the absolutely. SBA so that I can make sure I can close the next two to four weeks. Is that, is that right? A absolutely. Okay. If your time horizon's longer than that, you're almost certainly too early in your deal cycle to be at that point where you can have a loan approval and have a, a loan number assigned. So at that point, it, it's sort of a, I, I'm, you know, let me know if you see a different Eric, but at that point in my mind, it's sort of a control what you can and don't let what you can't control bog you down. Because if you're looking at a November closing because you're early in the deal cycle, one of two things happens. Either this government shutdown goes catastrophic and it has long lasting effects, which you have absolutely zero control over, right? Or the more likely scenario, this goes catastrophic for a few days. Congress finally realizes that their ineptitude is causing or about to cause a big catastrophe. They figure out what they're doing to at least get something interim passed through and the government reopens in a matter of days or a week or whatever. And this is a blip on the radar for your deal that's going to close in, in early November. The point is you can't control Congress, unfortunately. You can control what you're doing in your, you, you what you're doing you with enough, your lender. You can if you have enough money, but sorry. Well, please, that's yeah. true. If you can, you know, buy cent, but anyway, we you probably don't qualify for an SPA loan. But so the point being is if my deal is closing in the next two to four weeks, I'm calling my lender saying, what do I need to do to get my PLP number? If it's not, then I'm probably not worried about this at all. I'm probably just continuing to run my play, negotiate my deal, and we'll figure that out when we get to it. For everybody's benefit, I believe that the longest government shutdown in government shutdown history was in 2019, which was 35 days. So if you are a you know more than two week out closing, you're probably, you know, assuming that we follow the historical precedent, we probably are all going to be okay. Now, that being said, we're in a vastly different political environment than we were probably in 2019. So who knows? But to your point, control what you control. What about, Kevin, what about contractual provisions, outside dates? What should I be asking my lawyer about the terms of my agreement as it pertains to, you know, worrying about my deal getting dragged out and dying as a result? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great, question, Eric. I mean, obviously the sellers are in a similar predicament if there's a government shutdown and their buyer can't have loans advanced. I mean, we talk about this to our, you know, buy side clients all the time, right? Of, you know, the sellers stand a lot, they stand to lose a lot walking away from a deal as well. And so most sellers are pretty reasonable, particularly when it's something truly outside of control. So yeah, I would be looking at, you know, if you're in that scenario where you aren't, particularly if you aren't in a position to get your PLP loan number prior to a government shutdown, 
I'd be looking long and hard at your outside dates. And if they're fairly imminent, I would say kind of anytime in the month of October, I'd probably be thinking about approaching the seller and, you know, broaching this subject and saying, hey, can we paper up an extension? Even if the extension is contingent, you know, you may get a seller to say, hey, like, we don't need to extend if the government doesn't actually shut down. I just want to be responsible here. So let's make it contingent in the event of a shutdown. It tolls for an equal amount of days or it tolls for two weeks or something. But I would at least be thoughtful if you're going to be losing exclusivity, if you're already under contract on a purchase agreement that has an outside date that you have to close by, you know, October 15th, you know, I'd be looking long and hard at that, particularly if you're not going to have your loan approval prior to this weekend at starting that conversation now and just saying, hey, yeah, sky's not quite falling yet. I just want to be prepared. I don't think either of you or I want this deal to fail or want either one of us to walk away. We're committed to see it through, but we should talk about the time in case, you know, in case the loan is delayed a little bit due to a government shutdown. And just for everybody's benefit, what Kevin's referring to with an outside date is in your purchase agreement, there will be a date with which everybody can terminate or even exclusivity. You know, at the LOI stage, you know, you get a certain number of days to exclusively vet that business. If you clear that date, usually it's 90 days, but it could be 60, 30, whatever. You may want to go to the seller and say, hey, this is outside my control. You know, I'm, I, I want to close. I'm serious about this. I also want to make sure that you're not going to, you know, make me incur a bunch of busted deal fees if we get to October 15th and the deal is not done because you're going to walk away. You'll test them, right? If they're serious about closing the deal and they're not having any second thoughts, today's 925. If you're outside date in your purchase agreement, the date with which you can walk away is 1015. You go back to them now and say, hey, we're, fit, we're, for, we're looking at a government shutdown at 10 1. You know, historical precedent for that is 35 days. So why don't we say we move the outside date to, to November 15th just to be safe? And they start having heartburn about that. That may be an indication to you where the seller's head and heart is at. And if they're, you know, and if you can get that, you probably should right now. So that, that's what I'd be, that's what I'd be doing. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. let's summarize, Kevin. So if your deal's imminent, call your SBA lender, ask what you need today to get the PLP number. If your deal's not imminent, keep going. If you've got an outside date that's getting ready to expire or exclusivity that's getting ready to run out, get in touch with the seller and see if you can start working out an agreement now. Anything else, Kev? I mean, I think the only other thing without telling you which way to go, I'd be remiss to just say like, guys, vote, please, always. <laughs> we, we joke go about having polls. no control. We've got a little bit of control, but that's all I'll say. I won't tell you which way, just, you know, man, it sucks to see this happening repeatedly. It seems like it's... A, Happening more and more increasingly, it causes heartburn and it's frustrating to deal with, but that'd be my only other piece of advice. That's good advice, Kevin. So welcome to the pod, Tony. Today's episode is brought to you by Vicks Vapor Rub. Um, that's a joke. All three of us are under the weather. So for those of you listening out there, please bear with us. But Tony, welcome to the pod, man. You are somebody that, you know, everybody that I know that knows you has a ton of respect for you. This is actually our first time ever connecting. So great to meet you and, and fun to have you on. Why don't you start off by telling us your story and kind of give us some background on, on who you are and, and, and where you began. Yeah, that's a dangerous request because it can it can drag on a long time. It's I've been in this stuff for a long time. Keep, keep uh, it under 25 minutes, Tony. Under 25. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I started at a young age doing deals. I started out in real estate. I live in the Florida panhandle. And I'm a little ahead of you guys in years. I'm, you know, in my early forties. And so I was 
really getting into business about the time that the world went to shit with the Great Recession. So we lived through that and learned what it's like to build something and then watch it dissolve without it being your fault, really. And came out of that, which that's a whole, you know, so, sort of our real estate life that we could talk about if you guys like real estate. Came out of that and got into more of just the traditional entrepreneurship type business roles and in a true startup that my wife really came home with the idea to build a healthcare company for nursing homes. And over the course of the next, gosh, I think I served as CEO for, for that business from 2009 until 2018 when a PE firm came in and they brought in a new CEO. They didn't like that. That didn't work out. So they came back to me and said, Hey, will you go back in as CEO? <laughs> which was not the plan, right? It was, I wanted to go home. You were moving on. I was moving on. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, it's a really good, it's a really good topic about the different lives that can exist based on the, the structure you create at your exit. Like I'm still very much involved in my healthcare company because of the structure that I agreed to. Okay. First is some of the people that I'm friends with in, in our space, like Thomas Entz, who actually sold at the same time I did to the same PE firm that I did. <laughs> And has, yeah, he, he did a different type of like go forward participation sure. in me. And the way those paths led us to different realities today is a really cool study. But anyway, went back in as CEO, spent a year as CEO, decided we were going to do a, a really aggressive uh, roll up. And so I transitioned to executive chair and led a roll up strategy in this healthcare company, bought out a dozen other businesses. And, and I'm still in it. I'm still executive chair today of that company. And then I also run our family office alongside my wife, which we, we sort of juggle so, the winnings from the exit to the PE firm, you know? So until that point where you were truly startup for a decade or so until you had a private equity exit and you only started to become acquisitive after, or was part of that decade of growth, did that also include an, an acquisition strategy? Yeah. In fact, you should just eliminate the word strategy. It was so much of a startup, so entrepreneurial. That definitely resonates with Kevin and I. Indeed. When when we started this business, I went to my dad and I said, hey, we're going to offer dental services to this, these nursing homes. And my wife is a hygienist. We sat them down and we said, hey, you guys aren't going to get paid because we're not even sure how to make a business out of this. And so for the first six months, everybody just worked for free. Well, we tried to figure out how to develop a revenue stream out of it. It was that much of a startup. And so when a- acquisitions were not even like the space didn't even exist. Like we had no competition sure. because there was, it was really nobody was doing, nobody was doing this. Yeah. It was completely novel. So that's mind blowing to me though. Like who, who was the team at this six months? I mean, if it was just you and your wife, I get it. But like, did you actually had other team members that bought into the vision strong enough that they were like, yeah, I'll take a flyer for six months. Cause I, I, I believe in this or like who wasn't getting paid for six months. The, so the team not getting paid for six months was my, was myself. Uh, I was the full-time marketer was my wife. She was the full-time hygienist and my dad was the full-time dentist. Okay. And we basically just pulled from savings and bought, you know, whatever supplies we needed. So we were doing a, a, a type of care, a mobile type of healthcare, and the tools didn't even really exist. So literally to like, to make an adjustment to a denture in a nursing home, 
you need powered tools that are usually sure. plugged into the wall in a dental office. So my dad and my wife went to Lowe's and bought a Dremel <laughs> and adjusted the head of the Dremel to fit the tools at the dental office. And that's how they would go in there and provide care inside the nursing home. Like we were literally just wow. creating a, an industry from scratch as best we could. And until six months or so, they did it all and I did it all. And so there was no payroll. There was nobody we had to hire. Scrappy, man. Just scrappy. I love it. It's like the best, the, you know, the best startup story. I mean, it's risky, right? Because for every one of those, right, the business folded in month seven. But it sounds like you guys found a, a runway. So what did that look like as it started to transition into profitability, revenue, and your kind of growth from there? Again, I'll be careful with the word strategy, but what did the next, call it 12 to 18 months after you started to hit that, you know, monetization milestone in month six look like? Well, so let's back up to the beginning, which is like, we were going to try to provide care in an avenue where there was no funding. And so there's no Medicaid coverage for adult dental. That's why in the, in Biden's uh, Build Back Better, you had this big log jam about, are they going to include dental as, a, as an expansion to Medicare, it's because there's no dental available for seniors. So there was no funding and there was no hope of funding, except we found this study out of a, uh, a think tank out of Wharton from a professor named John Whitman. And in his study, he had concluded that you could use insurance, that Medicaid would reimburse residents for the cost of the premium and that premium could ultimately cover items that weren't necessarily covered by Medicaid. And so the theory was, theory, I'll remind you, that if you created dental insurance and a resident bought dental insurance, that the Medicaid would actually pay the premium for them. And so we created gotcha. a dental insurance. We sold dental insurance policies to residents. We then submitted this to the state and said, hey, you've got to pay them for the premium so they can pay us. And the state didn't even know how to do it. They, huh. It was federal law. They had to do it, but nobody had really done this. And so uh, I sat down with Carrie Sheffield, who at the time was the head of Department of Children and Families in Florida. And there wasn't even a form to submit it. So I created in Excel the form that for the next probably two or three years, anywhere in the state you submitted for this stuff, you submitted on the form I created. Oh, that's funny. They just like put the, they put the Department of Children and Families letterhead on it or, or heading on it and used it. And so we created this stuff from scratch. And so by the time we, you know, back to your question, what did it like at six months, you know, because it was just me and my dad and my wife and none of us were taking any money, every dollar that we were able to create in premium flow was contribution. We didn't have any cost other than the sure. cost of fuel and an IOU, which is more of a hug that I owed my dad for being a cool dad and supporting <laughs> me, you know? So we just didn't have to, uh, we reached profitability as soon as we reached revenue. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fantastic. So, uh, Tony, the theme of the show here is mundane millionaires and, you know, the enduringly profitable, simple, boring business. This sounds anything but simple and, and, and boring. I mean, you went out and you were on the cutting edge of regulatory. And I mean, how, that, that sounds like it was really challenging. Why, why choose such a challenging novel? Was it, you said there was no strategy. Was, did, did this all just, you know, it makes sense in hindsight, but at the time it, you know, we were just kind of going after it or how did that unfold? Uh, you know, it's, a, it's an opportunity here for me to really look better than I am. 
I would love to sit here and say, feel free yeah, to craft we, whatever you know, image you want. Yeah, we we saw this opportunity and we crafted this strategy to leverage this space and blah blah. No, the world went to shit in 2008. All of our real estate holdings fell 50 percent in value, but their debt didn't fall 50 percent in value, <laughs> and so we were in a really tight spot. Like our real estate was break even at best on its debt to equity ratio and we needed to do something else. And so my wife being a hygienist started looking around for a space that she could do something. And, and she came up with this. She said, I think there's something here. She got, she saw an ad and actually got hired ultimately temp, short term for someone trying to do something similar. And that's really where she got the idea for it. And we've just never, you know, from the time we were in college, we have resisted the idea of taking, the, the road well traveled and to take something against that. And, you know, mundane millionaires works really good for people that inherit a business or people that start a trade that's already an established, like, you know, I, I got my HVAC certification and I'm going to build an HVAC company. There's a really good path for that. But when you don't have any of that, you just have to get scrappy and create opportunity in the voids that exist. And that's how it got started. It just happened to be a void and we were willing to push. But now it was not mundane. It was not stress-free. It was not it was not even risk-free. Right. You get on the wrong side of using public dollars and it's like extremely scary. That's where my head was when you were talking about submitting forms, you know, on a theory, you know, I started to get a little sweaty over here, sweatier than typical, but I love this. Do you think this ever happens if not for the great recession and being kind of pushed and, you know, your real estate holdings are struggling and, and now you got to go figure it out do you, or do you think you guys would have got here either way? A hundred percent. We would have gotten here either way because... <laughs> The path we were headed on is we were planning to start doing syndicated multifamily acquisitions at the time that the Great Recession hit. And so it derailed us off of that path. Now, fast forward kind of three years after the Great Recession, which now we're in this healthcare thing, we would have been syndicating multifamily deals, which if you look at the guys that did that for the past 10 years, a lot of them have really outrun me. And so... And I'm a, like, I, I, there's zero doubt I would have been good at that. Like, I am a transactionalist. I am a salesman. I yeah. am high energy. Let's get some shit done. I would have gotten here either way, Eric, is the answer, because I just would have. <laughs> that's, see, that's not at all what I was expecting you to say. And I could see that on Kevin's face, too. Yeah, I was um, a little bit surprised. I, I had thought that was the nudge that you guys needed. So that's fascinating to me that you're saying I would have, you know, I am who I am, and this is what I would have become notwithstanding outside conditions. Yeah, um, well, I think that's not the answer 90% of people would give. Yeah, I would also say this is probably not true. Like we made our first million in college, my wife and I. So we, wow. you know, we were buying real estate, flipping deals, fixing shit up, like farming foreclosures. We were hustling. We literally dropped out of college and enrolled in a night program at college so that we could work, hustle deals all day long while in college. And, and picked up our first million while we were students. And so we just had enough hustle history by then that, you know, you can knock us down. A great recession is it's hard to dodge. Like you, you just can't dodge it. It's just one of those tide stories, you know, that catches all boats. 
Yeah. So it hit us, but we would have, yeah, we'd have powered through it somehow. Well, it's, it's interesting to me, and I'm curious if there are other things, you know, kind of coming out of the financial crisis you looked at doing only because it at least supports a theory, right? That, you know, a lot of times we're going to be attracted to or led to business opportunities in the areas where we already have some familiarity, right? It sounds like your wife was a dental hygienist and your dad uh, was already a dentist. I mean, how, how much did that play into the decision to go down this route specifically with a, you know, dental service provider related business, as opposed to the, you know, thousands of other ways you could have gone because you already had this history, you had this kind of foundation, as opposed to some other entrepreneurs who are maybe e-commerce guys that are like, yeah, I'm going to go into landscaping, right? Which is just like night and day different from what their background is. Well, so I, we were in real estate and if you were around in 2008, you can appreciate just how dead it became. And when what you do is completely removed off of the table, like you yeah. can't give away your property. Literally right. banks are doing these massive short sales. One of the properties we bought for $350,000, the bank ultimately sold the neighboring lot for 12. Jeez. That's, you know, that's what happened. And so when what you do is completely removed, then everything becomes on the table. And if you took an e-commerce guy and you completely shut down the internet and give him six months to sit around and think about it, he might own a landscaping company in six right. months. Like it's that real. When what you know is gone, if you're a true hustler, you can't, like it's just not in my DNA to sit. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's what I wanted to ask. Cause you guys, you know, to, to drop out of college, is this, you know, the hustle gene, is that genetic? Is it nature, nurture? Was it, you know, hey, we didn't have very much money growing up. So both my wife and I looked at each other and said, we got to go. Uh, what, what was the genesis for that? I don't have a good answer for that. I wish I could. I, I wish I could say, here's what it was. I, I remember when we were in college, we went to this program where it was a thing to learn about how to manage your financials. And at the very beginning, the guy teaching it had everybody write down on a piece of paper, what do you want to accomplish? And everybody in there wrote something down, like I want to pay down my credit card or I want to you know, get a nicer car or something. And I remember Cassie and I wrote down that we wanted to own a 3,000 acre riverfront farm. And when the guy got it, he was like, who wrote this? Like, where are, like, are you like 21? You know, what is this, what is this goal? <clears throat> and it was an actual goal that we finally met about 12 or 15 years later, but we just had early on a stronger vision for what could be accomplished in life than what is on average assigned to ourselves. Yeah. Because I had been told I was going to be a dentist. My dad was a dentist. My wife had been told, you know, just kind of in our culture, the man's in charge. And, um, so she was going to follow that and be my hygienist. That's why she was a hygienist is because I was going to be a dentist. And so when that blew up and I said, I don't want to be a dentist, everything became open. And we said, you know, what we want to be is wealthy. <laughs> and I don't care if that means healthcare. I don't care if that means real estate. I don't know, but I don't want to stay where we are. And that's, that was the mentality. 
Let's dive into the husband-wife duo here because that's the thing that's looming in the back. Ask the question you were just going to ask, but that's the backdrop here is this husband-wife duo thing is fascinating. Well, yeah, and, and, and maybe it's a good bridge because it's a question about both you and your wife, I suppose. I'm just, I'm thinking about this experience and I feel like a lot of people, particularly at that age, me included, would have gotten that reaction from the professor or whoever was teaching this class and like, and rethought that goal of like, oh my gosh, okay, yeah, I'm being an idiot. Like, that was too stupid. I need to be more realistic or whatever. And it seems like you guys were like, yeah, I mean, that's the goal. They can set their sights on a new Honda Civic if they want. Uh, <laughs> Enjoy your debt-free Civic while we're at yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, is there, can you think of a key to that type of, you know, mental resilience? Because I feel like a lot of people who are going to say, I want to go buy a business and are going to have a dad or a spouse or a brother be like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Here are all the reasons why you shouldn't do it. And they're going to say, oh, yeah, you're probably right. I'm just going to keep sticking out my W-2 job. How do you, how did you at such an early age build that mental resilience to be like, yeah, I mean, go pound sand. Like, that's what I'm doing. That's my goal. Yeah. Well, when we were raised, we're, we're raised in a rural area. She and I are sweethearts, high school sweethearts. We dated all the way through. Then I served a church mission. When I got back from that church mission, we got married <clears throat> and growing up, everybody that around that was successful owned really large holdings of real estate. It's just what we were exposed to. And yeah. so we had in our minds, that was what defined success was sure. you had accumulated these assets in a sustainable long-term way where you could literally hand them off to your kids and it was generational wealth. That's just what we had in our minds that we wanted to achieve. You know, S Steve Harvey actually has one of his things that he says is that you don't, you've got to stop living within the confines of your own paycheck. And I think as a youth, you can remove the word paycheck and you can sort of insert, you, you live within the confines of the expectations handed to you by your parents. Yeah. And what your parents want is a stable job and, you know, a suburb, a suburban house and two kids and a minivan. That's the life they see for you. Stable, you know, Make sure you can make that minimum credit card payment every month. You know, that's, they want stability. They don't want you out there swinging for the fences. And you have to have the courage. That's really the only word here that works. You have to have the courage to say, I can do better than everybody expects of me. It almost feels like, no disrespect intended, a healthy dose of like confidence and narcissism at the same time, right? Yeah. You know, just... Because for a lot of people, I think that criticism is probably right, right? Like yeah. we say this all the time, business ownership is not for everybody. And a lot of people shouldn't be yeah. starting a business, buying a business or something like that. And so I, th I think there's this healthy Definitely don't start, of, a, don't start a small business M&A law firm. That's a de terrible Definitely don't do that. <laughs> Worst <laughs> idea ever. Terrible business. Uh, On Twitter, right? The only one. Yeah, definitely don't use so social media either. Please continue. I think I would give a lot of credit to the church mission, which I did not enjoy it, but I did it out of a sense of duty and a sense of honor. And I was raised with this expectation. So I did it. But on that church mission, you live very poor. You get like 125 bucks at the beginning of every month and you have to survive the month off of that. And I went out with zero financial discipline and I would buy something stupid at the beginning of the month, like a brand new jacket or something. I'd have no money the rest of the month. 
And for two years, I lived in that cycle of poverty and I came home and I said, screw that. I do not want to live poor. I just don't. I don't want to have, I'm not like high maintenance. I don't live a grand life, but I am not scraping by and I'm not settling for that as what I'm going to have to chase. Like, yeah, I just, I picked it up out there. This, it just built and built this desire to bust out as soon as I could grow. I wanted to grow. Where were, where were you living on this church mission? I'd say I, I was raised in a Mormon family, and when you get to 19, you, you go do a two-year uh, service mission. It's, it, you, know, you learn a ton. I grew a ton on it, but it was hard for me. I was very homesick and yeah. ready to get back and get after life. And, but it is very, you, know, you learn to manage finances very tight, and you learn that's not fun. Full disclosure, despite my bourbon collection behind me, I too was raised in a Mormon family. So I, I did the same thing in Brazil when, when I was 19. I, the way you were talking about it made, made me wonder, but I, I experienced the exact same thing. You know, it was like, you want to go get pizza on Tuesday? And it's like, well, okay, you're out of money for the yeah. rest of the month. We got uh, three more weeks till we brutal. can get that. <laughs> we get another draw like in three weeks. Built character. I feel like I need, I need to disclose that I was raised a heathen um, and still am one, so... I can't believe I still talk to you. Circle. <laughs> Tony, how far do you get without your wife? Her name's Cassidy? Cassie. 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 Yeah, Cassie. How integral is she to this story? Yeah, I know exactly where I get without my wife. I'd be pulling teeth. Like, and there's nothing wrong with that, so I don't mean that as a, like, that's where I'd be. I would have done what my parents told me to do. I would have come back and taken over my dad's practice. My brother did do that, by the way, and he has a great life. Like, so it's not, there's no takeaway from that. But I think even he would tell you that creates a ceiling on potential because you, you're, you are the driver of revenue. So you cannot be removed from the success. You have to be there all day. You know, Cassie gave me the courage every time I faced challenges that required it. She's the one that actually had the courage. She's the one who just is fearless in the face of we might not make this work. And she sits you down and she looks you dead in the eye, you know, sitting at the kitchen table holding hands and says, yeah, we, we may fail at this, but we're not going to let that be an excuse to just sideline ourselves. To not try. Yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to try either way. And if we fail, I still love you and you still love me. And the great thing about America is it's built for, it's built for rebuilding. You can fail and you can start again. Who is the visionary and who's the integrator and what's the, the mix there of the day-to-day versus the big picture? Yeah, I'm much more visionary. I'm much more transactional. I'm much more people person, opportunity creator. You know, I can, I'm, I'm, I, uh, I, I grew up, I was always told I had the gift of persuasion. <laughs> so my wife on the you, other you hand. You laugh because I feel like you, you're, you're picturing some people who weren't saying that is exactly a compliment when you were a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're exactly yeah. right. You read it well. Yeah. My wife, on the other hand, you know, she is an operator. She is a almost kind of OCD system builder, like very organized. Whereas I'm pretty sure I have some clean clothes for tomorrow, but I'll have to check. She knows exactly where everything is. And, you know, so I'm kind of a mess and fun. And she's very principled and very organized. And until the day the PE company came in behind the scenes, I got all the credit out front for, oh, look at Tony, this businessman behind the scenes, 
like pulling all the wires and making the stuff work was my wife all day, every day. Every system that exists in the business, mostly even still today, she created from scratch and deserves all the credit. In fact, the business has never run a high, as high a contribution margin ever as it did under her. So she's just really good. I feel like the way you're talking about that relationship is the way I expect Eric to talk about our partnership on the next podcast appearance he's on. Because <laughs> well, no, hundred percent. I mean, that's, he's that, really is Kevin, the that is face. literally Kevin. And I, I, I just, laughed when you laughed about people describing you as persuasive as a kid and you chuckled. I was living that out. And, you know, I've, I had that, you know, as a kid as well. And, and that's a similar dynamic to Kevin and I in the firm, but don't tell anybody. But it made me laugh because I was picturing you guys as college kids and how extraordinary it is that you found each other as a visionary and an integrator in, as you guys met in college or you met younger high school, high school. school. So you met and you're a visionary entrepreneurial man who met an integrator, female entrepreneur in high school for all of the young guys that are listening out there and women, you're, you are now looking for that in your spouse. When you go on that first date, ask questions about their ability to build systems. If you're a visionary and vice versa, because that's a super cool dynamic that you guys had. And it's no surprise that you guys had a ton of success with that yin and yang. That's pretty, pretty special. Yeah. It never would have worked if she wasn't hot though. She is hot. Well, you know, Cause yeah. so, Otherwise, this whole thing would have come unraveled. <laughs> Anathan is another box. I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to say it. I pulled up her LinkedIn. I wasn't going to say it, but you know, glad you. <laughs> Just in case you listen later, I'm going to go ahead and right. throw that out. It's <laughs> multifaceted. There's a lot of factors. We get it. We. Get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do your diligence before you get into a relationship. That's all. That's also interestingly what people say about mine and Eric's partnership is. Oh, that she that Kevin's the hot one. That I'm the hot. Yeah, no, absolutely. Tony, let's come to the core of it, man. You built a business over the course of 10 years and then you became acquisitive. What's the better, you start over from scratch tomorrow. What's the better pathway? Not starting a business from scratch. I will never start another business from scratch. That is so hard. I have a ton of respect for those that are serial repeaters of this offense, mm-hmm. you know, the Elon Musk's of the world that can turn around and start up a new business every other day that, that is successful. But even the Elon Musk's would probably tell you, this is painful. This is very painful, very risky, very stressful activity versus, oh, by the way, I will also say sometimes just necessary. Like not everybody has the ability and the support to do an acquisition. And not everybody is wired for running a stable, founded, well-founded company. Some people are just starters. And uh, for starters, they should just start shit. But if you're not that, which most people aren't, you're way better off. Your success rate is higher. Your stress level is lower. Your life will be more full if you acquire a successful enterprise versus trying to start something, you know, the data is, is irrefutable. Your, your likelihood of failure is almost certain from starting from scratch. So, so you know, you should buy something. It's out there to buy. You know, Eric, you post about this regularly about uh, the greatest opportunity that's ever existed where there's this huge bolus of retiring sellers who want to 
transition out of their business, it's not only the right decision to buy, but it's a great time to buy. How would you structure your acquisition? Like you, you start over from scratch, you got to buy a business tomorrow. You're in this environment. You, you know, you've seen it all. What, what, do you, how, what, how do you go about it? The Tony today, like with my balance sheet or like I'm starting from nothing. Start over from scratch. Best country in the world to start over from scratch. Yeah. If I started over from scratch today, probably just because I'm battle worn, you know, I don't want to run another business. I probably would go the independent sponsor route. I probably would search yeah. for a deal that had good leadership in place. I would find a good GP or a stack of LPs willing to fill my capital needs on the equity side. There's always the debt if you need it. And so there's some really great examples of that right now among our Twitter group. There's a really good conference for that. I was actually just at it at the McGuire Woods conference uh, here two or three weeks back in Dallas. We're going to blow it out. We don't mention other law firms on our, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Bleep. <laughs> no, I totally would have been there if I wasn't traveling. I, I love the model. I love the independent sponsor model. T take us through I, that, guys. What break for the people who are listening that are in their car and they're like, I want to do, I want to go buy a business. I'm interested. What is the independent sponsor model? Yeah. So br break down particularly how it's different from self-funded search, Tony, if you don't mind. Well, the primary difference is you don't run it. Yeah. You do not go independent, sponsor a deal, and then step in as an operator unless all else fails. The, yeah. <laughs> the strategy is you find the deal, you build out the thesis. The thesis involves oftentimes replacing an operator that is a seller, that is a seller, you know, that is a retiree yeah. with a good CEO that's transitional so that when you go to go to sell the business, he goes with it. And it is almost always larger businesses, yeah. whereas your searchers and your both self-funded and traditional tend to buy a little bit under the radar of what independent sponsors buckets are. Independent sponsors are kind of, you know, three, $4 million minimum on EBITDA yeah. and up. And you're just not stepping in to run that business. You're acting as what they used to be called is the better example of them, which is a fundless uh, right. fundless sponsor. You don't have a fund, but you're still operating just like private equity. You're pulling That's in right. other people's capital and you're sponsoring the deal. You just don't have committed capital to do it. Well, and it looks very much like private equity too. I think one of the key differences from self-funded search, and we've talked about this before, the, you know, do you want the entire grape or the slice of the watermelon? The, the play with independent sponsor is you actually usually have a lot less economics. You raise outside equity and you lever and then the independent sponsor usually takes a carry. It can be 20%. Sometimes it steps up with certain hurdles of, you know, return on capital. It may step to 25, 30%. But it's a much smaller economic play than self-funded search where you may raise outside capital and keep 80% of the business. That's correct. But the difference, as you say, is your A, your initial acquisition is much larger. So your 20% of a $4 million EBITDA business is night and day difference than, you know, 80% of a 750,000 EBITDA, but then they're usually platform plays as well, right? And so usually, I mean, if you're an independent sponsor on a first time acquisition, you're, you're likely doing the first of what will be a series of platform acquisitions where you're kind of growing a larger enterprise and keeping that carry. It's a really great model um, for those who either don't like operating or aren't good operators. I mean, there are a lot of people who are deal guys. Like you said, they're sales guys, they're deal guys, they're transaction guys. They love the hunt. They love the game of the transaction, but don't want to be 
in yeah. there every day. It's a fantastic model. Yeah, dr are. drill down on that though, guys. Who, who's qualified to do this? Who, you know, who's the, the cast type to go accomplish this? Me. <laughs> Tony Lane. Yeah, you identify Tony, a good yeah. business. Nobody else. Tony but nobody else nine, do it. I'm the only one. It's, it's that transactionalist minded, that hunter, the guy that's just the hunt and kill, but can't that can't pay attention for any longer than that's me. Like the ADD, got to get after the next deal. We're great for independent sponsor work, but you know, searchers, they need to commit. Like they're going to run that business for a good long time. It's still a winning model. If you want to run a business, it's the way to go. But well, Tony, you're, you're an investor though. And I, I suspect that a lot of people that hear you guys talk about this are going, that sounds great. I sound like that type of person, but there's no way with my network that I can go raise millions of dollars to buy a big business like that. Talk about that. They are correct. You, the independent sponsor model is more, more available to those who have a track record. It is very hard, if not impossible, to raise capital as an independent sponsor, having never done anything before. And so I think that's a little bit back, Eric, to what you were initially asked, which is if you were starting over, what you would do, maybe that's not even the right answer, the independent sponsor, because it's potentially just not on the table, right? Uh, whereas organizing a search, building you a cap stack of uh, people that are gonna serve as LPs for you, it's definitely on the table. In fact, I'm, you know, I do some of that. I'm, I am an LP in the deal for numerous searchers, so. Well, it, it, and it, it's also important to point out, I think, that you don't, like you're not getting married to a model with your first acquisition. And so there is a strategy where folks who maybe haven't quite cut their teeth, who need experience operating, et cetera, can do that first acquisition as a self-funded search. It, it grows right into a larger enterprise that they then want to use as the basis for a platform rollup where they're able to bring in an operator for that business and now start to transition into an independent sponsor, you know, more of an independent sponsor role. Um, you know, I'm just, we just closed an acquisition for a client kind of in that, I mean, right in that cusp of making the transition, but was, you know, first acquisition was bread and butter, self-funded search. And, and as they're becoming more acquisitive, they're starting to transition their mentality and model more into that independent sponsor style. And they're looking at recruiting and bringing people in to run these platforms. So I think to your point, Eric, it, it's important to realize as great as this model may be and as hard as it may be for first time buyers to access, it's a good part of a long-term strategy, even if you're a self-funded searcher to keep in mind. And do you think, what's the better launching pad though? Self-funded search or traditional search? I would say that, um, in this context, when you want as a, as a launching pad to become an indie sponsor. Co correct. Yes. I mean, Tony, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, but one of the issues you run into on both sides of the equation are investors who really want that searcher dedicated to that business. I think it's a probably I'm intuiting a little bit here, so I may be wrong. I suspect it's probably easier as you've done a smaller self-funded search deal that you've had smashing success, you've tripled EBITDA, et cetera, and you're now looking at transitioning into a larger roll-up for better returns for your investors, I suspect that's probably easier to justify to your original investors than on the traditional search side where they backed you on a $20 million business. They're expecting you to be the CEO for a long time. And in year, you know, in year two, you're coming to them talking about, hey, we're going to hire a different 
you know, management operations team. We're going to go acquire more businesses. I would think transitioning from a traditional search acquisition into independent sponsors, probably a little more difficult from that perspective. At least that's my read, Tony. I don't know if you see it differently. They're just, there has to be a terminus between them, right? You, yeah. you just don't run the businesses at all as an independent sponsor right. and you entirely run the business 100% as a searcher. And so I think searching search in general, whether self-funded traditional search, whatever, I think it's easier to get into Eric is I think what you're asking, I think that is a better launch pad for being successful here. I think that's mostly true because the independent sponsor world, when you sit down across the table from them, they're going to want to hear what have you sold to PE that you created so far? Like they want to know that you're at this level. You guys know Thomas Ince. Like yeah. before Thomas was an independent sponsor, he created Zolage and he sold it to Sarant Capital. And so before he went to raise capital as an independent sponsor, he was able to sit down and say, yeah, I've already, you know, I've already created a company that I sold off to PE. I have that proven ability that I, that you can bank, that you can feel confident behind. You sort of have to, and you can get that in the search world and you can use that then as a launchpad into the independent sponsor world. And for, for those of you that are listening that don't know the distinction between self-funded search and traditional search, we dive deep into this in the episode with Bruce Marks. So if you want to jump over to that, yeah. you can uh, catch up on the background. So Tony, I think we got a couple of minutes left, man. You, you, had, you gave us a passionate speech before we went live about what you want young entrepreneurs to know about how to be successful. Give it to us again. Okay. But better. So but better. better. But you know, it's just never as good. On louder, repeat. Let's just louder. rewind. And if you could just play when I said before. <laughs> so it's this, and I'm very passionate about this idea. I, I look at my life and if I was to, to walk you through the story of my life, which I kind of did with Alex Bridgman on Think Like an Order, but if you went back and listened to that, what you would hear is a really good run of both failures and successes that ultimately lead to really good financial stability in the end where I am now. But zero of that would have been attainable had I not started acting before I bought a nice house and before I bought a nice truck and before I created what I call responsibilities. I took risks before I took responsibilities. In fact, my dad gave me a truck to go to college on. It was a nice F-150. I went straight to a dealership and I said, I'll give you this F-150 if you'll give me that Dodge Dakota and two grand. Because wow. I wanted money to go hustle with. And so you have to have some dog in you early. So where you take some risk before you get sucked into immovability, which is a child at home, a spouse at home, a house mortgage, a credit card balance, a utility bill, like all this stuff that is gravity against success. And you have this limited moment and everything is stacked against you. There's so much pressure to go get the degree, you know, make sure you take your humanities course, which you don't need. Make sure you take all this other shit that you don't need, but don't take any risk. Don't do that. And it's just the wrong advice. The right advice is you really can't screw up at that age. So take the risk early. And it is absolutely the greatest thing you can do toward your success is to 
limit the chain that holds you down. And those are just not there when you first start out. That's the advice. I think the second advice, I can go all the way back in time to my very first year in college, to the very first month after my wife and I were married. And I can show you our two financial statements. We run our family just like we run our businesses. Every month we produce a P&L, which is our salaries or our whatever, you know. And then we also produce our balance sheet. And we review it every 30 days. It is in a it is in an Excel tracker that goes back for years now, where just the tabs at the bottom are each single month. And we track our balance sheet month to month religiously. We have a meeting on it every single month, and we have done this for 20 freaking years. I think an obsession with, hey, I'm not going to get tied down with the path that everyone says go down, and then an obsession of, I'm going to track it and I'm going to beat it each 30 days. Those two things are the those those were the keys that, that really got us going. Do you ever go back and compare that first PL with last month's PL? Every three days. Literally, that early PL has my couch listed on it. I mean the early oh, balance the early yes. balance sheet. It's got you my couch. couch. I love <laughs> yes. it. I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> Line item just says Our couch. net worth. Net worth was like eighteen hundred dollars. Like I <laughs> I still have those. And whenever I teach people, sometimes they you know, I get asked to teach a class about personal finance or something. Sure. I get taught, I asked to come speak at FSU. I show those. I'm like, I, I sat in your chair and guess what I was doing? I was tracking, you know, you've got a car sitting out in the parking lot. I had it on, a, I had it in a spreadsheet. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I love that. I wish, you know, sometimes I wish I could go back and just like smack my 21 year old self and say, you know, that the the risk isn't as scary as you're making it out to be right now in the same way it's going to be when you're 41, you know, 20 years down the road, just because I, I mean, you're preaching to the choir here. I hope younger listeners are listening to you because uh, the stakes feel massive when you're 19, 20, 21, but they are just minuscule compared to 20 years down the road when you've got kids, you've got college, you've got all sorts of other things like, man, t- take the risks and swing for the fences. i I wish I could go back and do a little bit more of what you did, Tony. I'm a little envious. It felt really dumb in the moment, but looking back, it was really smart. And I thank you both for the invite. You know, being able to have avenues to be able to share is is really important. And it's rewarding to be able to do, you know, so I'm honored to be on here with you. I'm, I'm super, super excited about what you guys have created with your law firm, kind of out of nothing, out of Twitter. It's, it's just a really cool story, and I'm excited we to watch it keep that. going, yeah. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Tony. It. Tony, before we, we wrap, man, anything you want to, any projects you're working on, anything you want to plug? Everything I do is just sort of internal at this point. You know, we're, my wife and I's next step is we're actually, the reason I talk so much about the independent sponsor route, that's the route we're going to go. Um, but we're probably another six months out before we try to start getting really aggressive with that. We're reallocating our portfolio across some different things in real estate right now. So, but I appreciate the opportunity to be here. It's been great, guys. Amazing. Yeah, yeah this was amazing. Absolutely. Super appreciate fun. The time. Thanks, thanks for doing it, Tom. All right. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mundane Millionaires. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, make sure to follow Mundane Millionaires wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time.